This morning we're going to be continuing our series in Genesis chapter 28. Uh, the sermon is called Stairway to Heaven. Many of you are familiar with that song. Uh, that's not what the sermon's about, but I just always wanted to use that. Uh, if you are, uh, if you liked rock and roll or if you were uh, alive in the 70s, you've heard of it. Uh, if not, you're probably just saying, uh, that sounds cute. I wonder what that is. But nevertheless, that's the title of our sermon. And I want to just take us back and just uh, help us to remember the story and what's transpiring here. Jacob and Esau were twins. Uh, they were the grandchildren of Abraham, who was the father of the covenant promise of which God had called him out of his homeland into the promised land. And now we have found that the blessing of God was to rest upon Jacob, even though he was the second of the twins, the second of the boys. Now, the parents here in this particular family have their favorites. Esau, of course, is the favorite of his father Isaac, and Rebekah, the mother, her favorite is Jacob. There is a lot of manipulation within this family, and uh, we could probably make the healthy assessment that this was not a healthy, functioning family, whatever that means. And so we see what's transpiring here, and it kind of escalates. At first we see that Jacob uh, deceives his brother Esau out of his birthright, and then with the help of his mother later takes the blessing that Isaac uh, was supposed to give him in the first place, but they enter in and begin to manipulate the, the situation and the circumstances and begin to uh, foster bad blood in between the family members to the point that now Jacob has tricked, and his very name means that. It means trickster or deceiver. He has manipulated his waist supposedly into the blessing, supposedly into the inheritance but he finds out now that in order to preserve his life, he's going to have to leave home. And so that's exactly what happens. He takes off running to his uncle Laban's, of which he has never even been. He has never met. And so here he is, alone, away from his family, away from his tribe, away from his clan. Uh, he is alone uh, in a distant land. He is probably, at the point we'll pick up here, about 40 to 50 miles away from his homeland, the promised land. And he finds himself in a place that is desolate. He finds himself in a physical and emotional, a spiritual and financial place that's desolate. Quite frankly, because of his sin. But you know what's interesting that we'll see is there was a covenant promise made to Abraham. There's a covenant promise that goes ahead and covers his descendants. And there's nothing that Jacob can do. There was nothing that Isaac could do that could eliminate God's promise, his covenant, that these, through these people, through this line, the nation of Israel will succeed. And many nations, the Scripture and the passage will tell us in here, many, all those who know them will be blessed. It will have the power and the blessing that will finally come in the promise of the Messiah. And there's nothing that they can do to eliminate that. But it doesn't mean there aren't consequences of the sin that Jacob commits. And we shall see that as we go. It's kind of interesting. You know, it reminds me of when I was growing up back home in Louisiana, and I remember one of my dear friends, he had a father and a mother, and his mother was in, in good physical health. She always was careful about what she would eat. She stayed physically fit. But his father 
Um, he, he smoked a lot, he drank a lot, and he ate a lot, and he never exercised. But you've heard this story before. Um, she dies, <clears throat> and then he's still living at nearly 80 now today. And you say, how does that happen? Because hasn't modern medicine taught us that if you do not physically take care of your body, then it will cause consequences and probably death. But we know it doesn't always work that way. It doesn't always happen that way. Now, because he has had quantity of life, but can I tell you this? He hasn't really had quality of life. You see, in our, uh, in our economy today and in our society today, we put a lot of uh, blessing or a lot of favor or a lot of value on longevity or on quantity. But really in God's economy, He really puts more value on quality. See, my friend's father, he hasn't had a quality life because of the physical problems, but he still continues to exist. And we will see this with Jacob. We see this in his life, that he will experience quantity, and later on he'll even experience quality, but there is definitely a price to be paid. And, you know, life isn't always that black and white. We like to think, I do good things, I get good things. If I do bad things, bad things happen to bad people. And we like, we like to just simply tie it up and put a bow on it and make it that simple. And it is true, the Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 6, that we certainly reap what we sow. And we see that very true in the life of Jacob. But what we also find out is that does not eliminate the promises of God. The promises of God, the promises that God has made to us. Our salvation, once we have received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, <clears throat> that is a promise that has been given to us. And though some of us may stray and though we may fall off the boat, uh, that does not negate God's promise. Now, that does not ensure quality of life for us, nor quality of faith, but it does not negate the promises of God. As we pick up with this chapter, I think it's important for us to realize no matter what we do, we cannot obliterate the promise of God. We cannot extinguish the favor and the promise of God. But we will see next week that we certainly can see significant reduction in the quality of our lives based on our decisions and as the consequences of sin. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 28, beginning with verse 10. And Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. Now, Beersheba is actually, the, that word actually means covenant or oath of wells. This, this was the land of which they were living. And they set out for Haran. And literally, here's what's happening. If you remember where Haran was, if you go back to chapter 11 and chapter 12, this is where Abraham's father had found himself. He had not quite entered the promised land. And some of them had just camped out there. They had stopped there. And so there were still relatives there. It was not the promised land. And you see Jacob having to go and leave the land of promise and head back to a place that he thinks will be a place of safety where his uncle Laban resides, where some of his relatives still were left, not in the land of promise. So he's leaving that land of promise to a place of which the land of promise does not exist. And when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down 
to sleep. Now, there's a lot of debate about what were these stones? What did they consist of? Uh, some translations will t- say that they, he put his, the pillow or he put the stone behind his head as a pillow, but in the Hebrew, we're not really sure. It could have been his head was actually lying beside the stone. And many scholars would take that position that Jacob at this point is using that stone kind of as a protection or as almost kind of like we would sometimes find our lucky rock. A, a stone of which he thinks will give him luck or will give him protection. That's very possible because we see that Jacob's faith is not developed. As we will continue to read in this passage, that Abraham certainly had a relationship with Yahweh God. Isaac has a relationship with Yahweh God, but at this point, Jacob has simply adopted a faith. He has not come from our understanding and from all indications of Scripture into a real and personal relationship with God. Now, some of you maybe can relate to that. Maybe there was a time in your life where you were raised in church and you grew up in the faith, but it wasn't until later on in life that you adopted that as your faith. I think that's true for all of us. Most all of us who were raised in church, there has to come that moment, that Bethel moment, that house of God moment, that Ebenezer, that moment where we come to, uh, we come to the fact that this is a faith that I've been raised in, but God, have I embraced you? Do I believe that you are the eternal salvation, that you are the one and only God of the universe in which I receive you and accept you and make a commitment to you? I believe personally that Jacob has not come to that place up to this moment. He has simply adopted the faith of his father. He simply existed within the faith of his grandfather and his father. So now because of his sin and because of the consequences of those sins, he finds himself out. He finds himself alone. He finds himself probably in despair, physically, emotionally, even spiritually. It would be very much like in this day and age if you decided that you were going to take a trip from the border of Mexico and you were walking 500 miles, which is about the length of this trip that he's taking to his Uncle Laban, if you walked 500 miles by yourself into Mexico. When people see you, they think, what is he doing alone? What is he running away from? You see, in this particular culture, there was no police. So when you get outside of your clan, when you get outside of your family, there must be something wrong. You've done something to break relationship or you've committed some kind of crime. There must be something wrong with you or you must be some type of criminal. So everyone he would meet would probably kind of tilt their head and wonder, what's the deal? Why are you out here alone, away from your people, away from your clan, away from your family? And this is where Jacob finds himself. And in verse 12, he had a dream in which he saw a stairway. Your translation may use the word ladder. Resting on the earth, and with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Jacob has a dream, and in his dream, he sees angels descending and ascending upon this giant stairway that leads to heaven. And the Bible tells us right here in verse 13, there above it stood the Lord, and He said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. Your grandfather and your father... I am their God. I am Yahweh God. You have heard of Me. You know the stories. 
You have been raised in the home. But we have every indication to think that as he describes himself, but maybe not necessarily a personal relationship with you. I am the Lord your God, the father of Isaac and of Jacob and of Abraham. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. And your descendants will be like dust in the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. And all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Here's Jacob in a complete moment of despair. He finds himself alone in a dry and an arid place, in a place of desolation, in a place of alone like he had probably never known loneliness. And he wonders, have I really messed up my life? Will my Uncle Laban ever receive me? Will I even get there? He's probably dealing with all these fears. And God comes to him in his moment of desperation. In his moment of which he thinks, maybe I have messed my life up so severely that there's nothing left. Will I even make it? And God comes to him in that moment of despair in that moment of desolation. And He gives him the vision that I'm here. That I'm in control. And He sees the angels running back and forth upon this stairway into heaven. And God speaks this word of promise, not because Jacob deserves it, not because he has earned it, but because of who he is. Because of the covenant promise God has made with His ancestors, with His father Isaac and with His grandfather Abraham. And He says... Through your descendants, though they are like dust. You see all this dust, all this sand? Your descendants will be like that. And through them, through your descendants. It's an interesting promise. And a lot of times we miss this part right here. It says, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. Now, how is that possible? Well, you know where Jesus comes from? He comes from this line. The Messiah will come and the nations will be blessed. So he receives this promise. And we'll see again later on, there are consequences for his sin. Jacob, for the next 20 years, will pay for his sins, but it does not negate the promise of God. The promise. And one day he will return to the homeland. One day he will receive this promise in fullness. But it will be sometime. And I am with you and will watch over you wherever you will go. You think you're alone now. You think you've destroyed your life. But I am with you. This God of Abraham, God of Isaac, Yahweh God. And I will bring you back to this land. And I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Do you know Jacob had the mindset that my God, the God of my father, the God of my grandfather, He has blessed them and He resides in this land. But now I have chosen to have to leave because of the consequences of my sin. I am leaving that land. And in his mind, he probably thought, I am leaving that God. But now he finds out that Yahweh is not just in the land that was promised. He is wherever I go. Jacob has that Bethel moment. That moment where he experiences God in fullness and realness for himself. And when Jacob awoke from his sleep, and I, I think that's a classic word right there, when he awoke from his sleep, some of us, we have been raised with all the opportunities and all the blessings, but have we ever awoken? 
have we ever come to the place where we recognize what God has done and received Him and His fullness? Surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. Surely God was all around me. He has been in my presence, but I have not been aware of it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. There is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And early the next morning, Jacob took a stone that he had placed his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called that place Bethel, which means house of God. Anytime you see that word Beth, that means house. So when we see Bethlehem, that is house of bread of which Jesus was born. When we see the word Bethany, it means house of song. You see Bethesda. It is the house of mercy. And now we have Bethel, house of God. And here we are at the house of God. Through the, Though the city used to be called Luz, and you see that happening sometimes when there's a great occasion, sometimes the town will change its name or the person will change its name. What's interesting is we'll see several chapters later that God changed the name of Jacob. And what is the name of Jacob? Trickster or deceiver? And what does He change His name to? Does anybody know? Israel, of which the nation shall be blessed. We see Him changed to Israel. Here's a bit of trivia, and I'll, I will discuss this in a few weeks, but what does Israel mean? Do you know? Israel means one who struggles with God. One who wrestles with God. So he's become, he, he has his name changed from one who deceives, one who tricks, to one who wrestles with God. One who struggles. Can I tell you this? And this is another sermon, so I'm, you're going to think you don't have to come later. Uh, but that word Israel, it, it's interesting to me that God changes His name to one who struggles with God. Do you realize that the life that we live of faith is often one of struggle? And sometimes the greater faith comes from that struggle than simply living in the house of blessing. You see, Jacob's been living in the house of blessing, but he doesn't really know God. It's not till he comes into that life of struggle that he really experiences the richness and the fullness of God. Another sermon for another day. Verse 20, Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me, you see the, com the commitment and the promise that God has made up to Jacob. Let's kind of reiterate that. Let's look at that one more time. We see in verse 14 and 15, God has told Jacob, look, I am with you. I am with you. Then number two, He says, I will watch over you wherever you go. Wherever you are, I will be there. I will watch over you. My presence will be with you. And thirdly, we see the promise, I will be faithful to complete all that I've promised. The covenant that I made with Abraham, the promise that Isaac knew of, I will complete it. I will fulfill that. In the land of inheritance, you will certainly be brought back to the guarantee. It's just like uh, the guarantee I have with my uh, grandfather had some land. He passed it on to my father and it's been passed on to me. And it has nothing to do with any merit that I have accomplished. It has nothing to do with how good or how bad. It's just a promise of land that I receive one day. And it's just, it's not very much. I won't, I won't get much for it. As a matter of fact, I'll probably pass it on as well. 
But it is a covenant promise that my grandfather made and that my father made and that they have made with me. So is this promise that Jacob has received from God Almighty. And now Jacob's commitment to God. And, and granted, his theology is probably not very well developed. He has heard the stories. He knows of Yahweh God. But he spent his life, and his mother, by the way, has done nothing to discourage it. If anything, she's encouraged it on manipulating circumstances. This being deceptive, trying to get the blessings, trying to get where he wants to be in life. But now that has brought him to a place where he is alone, where he has left his father, he has left his brother, and his mother who has assisted him, he will never see again. Verse 20, Now Jacob makes his vow as he has experienced God Almighty. He says, God... If you will be with me and watch over me this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I will return safely to my Father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And the stone that I have set up here as a pillar will be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Now, either one or two things are happening. And this, let me confess to you, I don't know which one it is. Okay? Uh, aren't you glad you come to this church? And, you know, like, like preachers are going to give you this good answer. And I'll go, here's one of two you can uh, feel free to select from. Number one, and many scholars will take this position, Jacob's faith is so elementary that he is still in that mindset of bargaining with God. God, you do all this, and then I'm going to do this for you. And because of the elementary level of his faith, God still honors. Because of the covenant promise that he has presented, God honors this. Just like sometimes He honors it when we make ridiculous vows like that when we're young and immature in our faith. Now, that's one way to look at it. And that's, that's possibly the way to do it. It's the way most people would interpret The other one is, as you look at the Greek word here that's used as if, it can also be interpreted depending on how it's positioned and how it's used. It can be since, the word since. Matter of fact, same way in the Greek. If and since in the Greek uh, can be used interchangeably depending on what the text it is being, how it's being presented. So some Hebrew scholars would say what a better translation would be is since, God, you are doing all these things, then, then I, I can't help but make this promise to you. Either way, it does not change the truth of the text. Jacob makes a commitment. He says, I will dedicate my life to you. I will worship you. Matter of fact, this is a Bethel moment. This is a... Ebenezer, remember that song. Some of you are old enough to remember, Come thy fount of every blessing, let thy blessing fall on thee. And then the second verse he says, I, I take my Ebenezer. Remember that word, Ebenezer? That always threw me off when I was a kid. I always thought of Scrooge. You know, Ebenezer, Scrooge. But you know what the word Ebenezer literally means? It means rock of help. This is his Ebenezer, his rock of help, his experience, his house of God, his rock moment. He has been given the grace of God, but now he decides to embrace the grace of God. There have been times for us that most of us in here where we have received the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We transferred our trust from any efforts that we could accomplish to what Jesus Christ did upon the cross for us. But then there also hopefully have been moments 
where you have encountered God in a real and meaningful way. And it was a moment of Bethel. It was a moment of which the Spirit came upon you and gave you divine direction or divine power for that moment. It was an evolutionary moment in your faith where you embrace God in a new manner and in a new walk of faith. And I can remember that time for me. It was at a camp when I was 18 years old. I already knew Jesus, but to where I embraced Him, to where the fullness and the magnitude of His power, I completely submitted myself to and said, God, now I want You to use me. And I want to make an impact in my school and with my friends. And I can, rem- I can remember several moments in my several Ebenezer moments, several Bethel moments, if you want to call, the, call them that. And you've had those times too. And the question is, is not, is God speaking? As He said, surely God was in this place and I didn't know it. God is speaking. God is moving. But do we hear Him? Do we stop to receive? And when we have those moments, do we stop and say, God, what is it that You want? Is the next step You want me to take? God, I want to embrace You. And I want to make some changes in my life. And I want to more fully embrace You. Or do we go, hmm, that was a good service. Hmm, that was pretty neat. Mm, that's really special how God answered that prayer. And then we just kind of move on. And we miss that moment of Bethel. We miss that moment, that Ebenezer moment, so to speak. But Jacob, he embraces it. And he makes a commitment with his life. And he says, I dedicate my life to you. I choose to worship you. I've been just going to church, so to speak. I've been a part of a family that worships you, but now I commit to worship you. And then he says, and I will tithe to you. That's literally how he concludes here. He says, and I will give you a tenth. Where did he learn that from? I'll tell you where he learned it from. He learned it from Abraham, chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. When Abraham has an experience with Melchizedek, which most would believe was a Christophany, a viewing of Jesus Christ, an appearance of Christ. And what does he do? He tithes to him. And we see Isaac must have learned this lesson as well. And now Jacob, when he makes this commitment, he makes a commitment to worship. And when we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, it's not just mentally. It's not just with what we sing. It's with all that we've been given and we have. And so he worships him. He makes a commitment to worship him with all that he has through his giving, through his worship, through his life. Now, a lot of times, and this is a side sidebar as well, a lot of times people say, well, what's tithing supposed to be for anyway? What's giving supposed to be for anyway? Well, I can tell you what the Old Testament was for. It was for four purposes. Number one, it was for the establishment or the upkeep of the tabernacle and then later the temple. That's number one was for. Number two, it was for the priest, for the Levites and the priests. Number three, it was provisions for the poor. And number four, uh, it was for when they would have celebrations, festivals, uh, where they would have the celebration covenant festivals. Those were the four purposes. In New Testament, we see it extended to church planting and missions. We see it still covering these things, but we see it also in the form of missions. So when people ask about what are we supposed to do with that money, it's not that new. Uh, when we get outside of those, then we have an argument. But nevertheless, here's the text. Here's where we see Jacob encountering God. So what are some observations? What are some lessons that we can learn? Well, first of all, we notice that Jacob was unaware of God's presence, but that didn't mean that his presence was not there. Jacob didn't think that his, the presence of God went, 
with him into this dark, forbidden valley. But the presence of God was there. It was in his desperation that Jacob experienced God. In his pride, in his ego, in his spirit of manipulation, in his spirit of deceitfulness, he had not encountered God, though God was there. God provided Jacob an inheritance regardless. Now again, it doesn't mean that there weren't consequences for his sin, but because of who he was and because of his line, because of the promise that had been made to Abraham. But we also will see that the consequences of sin are hard. And how do you respond to God's revelation to you? What about your Bethel moment? I, I thought it was interesting uh, last week. Some of you probably read about this. And um, this is not one of those issues that make or break our faith. But, uh, you know, the news media gets a hold of it. But there was a Dead Sea Scrolls stone, so to speak, found. Uh, and apparently it was discovered before, but now they've just discovered what they have. And what they found, and this was at least a hundred years before the time of Christ, what they found on this stone was, and it's been authenticated by most archaeologists, and they found that on this stone, which came anywhere from a hundred to two hundred years before the Christ, there was a prophecy given. And in this prophecy uh, written upon this stone, this is what was stated, that there will be a Messiah who will come and... He will die, and three days later, He will rise again. Now, there are some in the Christian community that get a hold of that, and they go, that proves everything is true. And let me say, there are some significant statements for that. There, most liberal scholars will say, tell you that the Pauline theology, that the resurrection was really developed by Paul. It wasn't a statement of Jewish faith, and it wasn't something that Jesus really taught, but it was really more something that Paul devised to kind of jumpstart the Christian faith. So many liberal scholars have always pointed to that and say, you know, that's really something more of Paul. Well, that kind of discredits their argument. That's kind of shot their argument in the head. Matter of fact, many of them saying, we well, don't know if this stone is real because they've been writing multitude of books saying, that's strictly Pauline theology. That's not theology from the New Testament or from the Old Testament. Jews didn't really believe. That's something Paul kind of came up with. So there is, from that fact, some credibility given but then there are those who will use it will say, you see, that was something that the Jews already knew about and Jesus just tried to capitalize on that. You see, they, he already had heard of that and he was just capitalizing on that opportunity. See, it wasn't something new. Some people already knew about that and he just somehow manipulated all the circumstances and made it to where it looked like he appeared three days. He didn't come up with that. That wasn't a new statement. Can I tell you this? It doesn't shake my faith, and I'm not all invigorated now and think, oh, now they found that stone. I really believe. It, it, it doesn't change my faith one bit, one way or the other. Uh, now, it does give me some ammunition against people who say, oh, the resurrection, I've heard that before. The resurrection is really more uh, Paul theory. That's really something Paul came up with. Well, now they can't say that. But it doesn't shake me that there was a statement or a prophecy, by the way, an unbiblical prophecy, in other words, not one from our Scripture, where somebody comes up with a prophecy like that, okay? That doesn't shake my faith either. It doesn't make an impact one way or the other. What it does is it continually shows us that man is going to be grasping and looking for answers when the answer is in the person of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. By salvation through grace, we have received the promise, the gift of salvation. What about your Bethel moment? See, the way that you think about God today is incomplete. 
You, you know, and why do I say that? Because you had a concept and an understanding of God when you were uh, 15, when you were 5, when you were 15, when you were 25, and now when you're 35 or 45 or 55. As we grow, we start to understand that we can't put God as in a big box or in a small box. And so as we grow in our faith, our faith continues to embrace more of God. And if you're like me, you start to understand there are a whole lot less answers that I'm just very radically, I'm right and you're wrong on. There are the basics of the faith. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The Word of God and its truth. But then when I come to passages like, well, what does that rock mean? Or what was Jacob thinking? I can say, you know what? Here's what I know. I know the truth of Scripture to be true. And I know the message that God's trying to give me here. But what Jacob was thinking, I'm not positive what Jacob was thinking. That frees me up. I don't know about you. I know every once in a while somebody says, why don't you just tell me? Well, I can tell you, but I might be telling you wrong. Okay, so I just want to tell you the truth and recognize that I serve and love a God who is bigger than me having all the answers. I want to conclude here. Now, here's a pretty good answer right here. Let's turn. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And we're going to conclude with this passage right here. John chapter 1. And jump on down to the 43rd verses. And there are verses there in your Bible. Or verses in your Bible. There are Bibles there in your seats if you need one. Verse 43. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, finding Philip, and said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter... Uh, from the town of Bethesda. And Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, about whom the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come see, said Philip. Catch verse 47. Chapter 1 of John, verse 47. And when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to them, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is... Nothing false. Your translation may say nothing, no guile or no deceit. What's the word that Jacob means? Deceit. Deceiver. Trickster. Here is an Israelite, and you could almost translate it this way if we were using the Hebrew, in whom there is no Jacob. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, the fig tree in this particular time and culture was used for meditation, for study. Matter of fact, many of those uh, philosophers and particularly those Bible, uh, Bible students would sit under the fig tree and study or meditate. And Jesus says, I saw you, Philip. You were meditating there under the fig tree. And then Nathaniel, or he said, I saw you, Nathaniel. Then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. I'm not so sure why he said that. Jesus is going to give him reason to think that in just a moment. But just because you knew what I was doing, just because you knew where I was, you know it's the truth. And Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree? You shall see greater things than this. And then catch this, verse 51. Pay attention to this. And then he added, I think this is probably what Nathaniel was meditating on, or perhaps even reading. Then he said, I tell you the truth, you shall see... Heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, what did we just read in Genesis 28? What experience did Jacob have? He had an experience where he saw the angels of heaven going back and forth, ascending and descending upon a ladder or upon a stairway to heaven. 
And now, Nathanael is told by Jesus, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. See the picture there? Who's the Son of Man? Jesus Christ. How do we come to God today? Through the person of Jesus Christ. He now is our stairway to heaven. Have you had your moment of Bethel? Have you had that time where you come to experience the realness and the richness of His mercy and His grace? And I want to invite you to do that today.